The sermon text today is Romans 16, verses 21 through 27. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospater, my kinsmen. I, Churches, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I'm sure we've all read those books or watched those movies that kind of have that, that uh, ending that's a bit of a dud or a thud. It, it doesn't have the, the rousing end that you would expect of a, of a good book or good movie. It's kind of anticlimactic. It, it kind of falls off instead of soars up. Well, I think with Paul, we see that the end of his letter here, we're at the end of Romans 16, that he did not end with a, and they lived happily ever after, or the end, or bye-bye. But, but he just took us up to the glory of God to see how incredible God was at the end of his letter. Now, you know how he began his letter, if you remember way back then, uh, that <clears throat> Paul introduces himself to this church. And well, Paul's never been to Rome. He introduces himself to the church, and he tells them that he has been called by God to be an apostle to the gospel. He's been set apart. He's set apart to the gospel, and, and he is called by God to take it to the ends of the world. He said, in fact, in verse 5, to bring about obedience of all the nations. That's Paul's desire. He wants to bring the gospel to the ends of the world. This is why he's writing the church in Rome. He hadn't been there before, but he wants their help. He wants them to join with him so that they might together take the gospel to the end of the world. And the reason that the gospel has to go there the reason the gospel has to go out is because we need the gospel. I mean, Paul lines very clearly, he lines out this need to share the gospel. In fact, in the first three chapters, what we find is this idea that all men, all women have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we all need to be made right with God. Now, I know many of you, you may be thinking, I didn't feel like I was against God. I didn't feel like I was a God hater. I didn't feel like I had this high hand of defiance against God. But here's how Paul nuances it. Uh, Paul shows us that when we don't even regard God as God, that's a great offense to God. He says that you didn't give him thanks. You didn't give him glory. The very creator who's given you life, breath, and everything you have, you may have worked very hard, but you have worked with the, ster- with the strength that he's provided, that you don't give him thanks. You don't consider him. This is a great act of treason against God. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, we are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him, but they became fools, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. In other words, we've all done this. Instead of growing up wanting to give glory to God, we've exchanged his glory for our own through the creation that he's given to us. And so in the first three chapters, Paul reminds us that all of us are without excuse. We all need, they all need, we all need this gospel to be preached to us. And yet God, in great mercy, though we were treasonous, we read at the end of chapter 3 that he's given a son that who would be a propitiation. He took upon himself God's wrath so that God might be favorable to us. That's what the word means. And that by faith we can be reconciled to God. So Paul lines that up. And then if you remember, he quickly runs through. In chapter 4, he shows us a picture of faith with Abraham. In chapter 5 and 6, he says, you have now new life. New life has been given to you. You have peace with God. In chapter 7, we're reminded that we do still struggle with sin. I mean, we haven't been removed out of this world with its sin. So we still struggle, but we're going to overcome. In chapter 8, we've been given the Spirit. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. Well, nothing will separate us from God's love. That's an assurance to us. And then in 9, 10, and 11, he reminds us how this message is for all people, Jews and Gentiles. We're all made into a new humanity. We are made new. And then, of course, in chapters 12 all the way through 15, he shows us how this new humanity lives. Remember how we, this is how we relate to God? We're going to offer our, our lives as sacrifices? This is how we relate to one another. This is how we relate to the government. This is how we relate to the culture. And then he says, this is how we relate to the strong, and this is how we relate to the weak. So he tells us how we live. We are his new humanity in exile, right? We're not with God. The, the, the whole culture and the whole world has not been yet redeemed. This is where we live until that day. So it's incredible. And so we, we get brought up to chapter 16. He gives final greetings, he gives the final warning, and he gives final words. That's what he's doing in our passage. He gives this doxology. You notice in your text you don't have a verse 24. It goes right from 23 to 25. Uh, that's simply, it's not a typo. It's just that that verse is not in some of the old manuscripts. So it's not put in the Bible, but it's usually footnoted. It's the same benediction that was given a few verses earlier. But what he's doing here in these last few words is he reminds us of the nature of the church. He tells us about the nature of the church in 21 to 23. So if you were going to put an outline down in your paper, it would be the nature of the church, 21 to 23. That is to reflect God's glory. That's the nature of the church. We're to reflect God's glory. And then... You see the purpose of the church in 25 to 27. You see what the church is supposed to do in 25 to 27. So let's just look at the nature of the church for a minute. You know, many of you, <clears throat> it's these eight men whose names were read, they are in the church of Corinth. Remember, Paul wrote the letter in Corinth. And so he wrote this letter, and these were with him. So in, in chapter 16, at the beginning, all those names... They were to friends in Rome. These are the men in Corinth. Now, you know Timothy. That name's familiar to you. He's a protege of Paul. He started with Paul on his second missionary journey, a fellow worker. He was really a child of the faith to Paul. You've seen his name sprinkled throughout the New Testament. 
Okay, the other three he calls kinsmen. Uh, these kinsmen are probably just fellow Jews. They're not relatives, but they were fellow Jews. Uh, but then you see that word uh, that Gaius, well, Tertius is there, and, and he's a, um, a stenographer, he's a scribe, he's a secretary, he's recording what Paul's saying. You see Gaius there, Gaius is, is probably a richer man, you see he's hosting the church, he's taking care of financially of Paul and these others. You see Erastus, he seems to be some public worker, it could be actually a higher up in the, in the uh, Roman government there in Corinth. You see Quartus. Quartus is just probably a slave. What you see here, though, is this group of men who are very different yet very loving. They're really a picture of the church. Think about it for me. They give us kind of an attractive picture of the church, don't they? I mean, can you imagine this one man just funding the care of these missionaries? You see there to be this, the love that is expressed in the greetings. You know, they're saying, he's saying, well, Tertius greets you, and Erastus greets you, and, and, and you know, Quartus greets you. You can imagine them all around a table. They're finishing up this letter that Paul's now putting his own hand to, and they're all saying, well, tell him I said hello. Tell, they didn't know each other. They had this common bond in the gospel. There's something attractive about a loving community that is different from one another. They really seem to care about the church in Rome. But they weren't just attractive in their love. They, they were also distinct in that they were different, and yet they were one. Think about it for a minute. There were Jews and there were Greeks. Now, you know there's a big cultural difference there. Not just Jews and Greeks, uh, but there were people from a different social order. You have Erastus and you have uh, Gaius, who probably were higher up the rung, if you will, of economic strength and position. But then you have uh, Tertius and you have Quartus. You know, they were probably slaves. The reason we know that is because their names mean third and fourth. You know, back in that day, they didn't give slaves names. They gave them numbers. If you were the number one slave, you were Primus. If you were the number two, you were Secondus. If you were number three, you were Tertius. If you were number four, you were Quartus. So here's three and four. They don't even get names. They're just in that pecking order of whatever slave orders in the home. And so you hear, you have this missionary team of slaves and aristocrats, of, of poor and of rich. It's a beautiful picture of the diverse union of the church. They're loving and yet they're so different from one another. You know, I hope if you haven't been here for long in this church that you find this church attractive and loving, attractive and distinctive. I, I hope you see... Um, you know, because I fear sometimes when, when folks come and they're new, um, they've said sometimes we have trouble getting connected. We have trouble getting to know people. Uh, we have trouble plugging in. Uh, that, that can be a complaint that's really, can be long-term running. And um, I'm sorry, I think the church needs to grow in this. I really do. I think sometimes you look at our church and you say, well, we've got these groups, but they're kind of exclusive, kind of like an invitation only. Or, or you have people that are just inhibited, or they try, but it didn't work out. And, and I'm sorry for that. The, the church is to be attractive and diverse and having that distinctive of a union that's, that, that we are one and yet we're different. And, and really, the burden comes to us as a church the members here. 
When was the last time we invited someone into our world that was new to us or been different? You know, we have to be the ones to kind of reform the circle. So we have 20 new members coming in here in a few weeks. How are they going to plug in? Everybody's got their circle lined up. How are people going to break into our, or do they just have to form their own new circle? So we, we want to be a diverse, we want to be an attractive union. But it takes us. You know, look at the nature of your relationships. How many people do you have close to you that are really different than you? Did you follow about three weeks ago? I said, if you're single, invite a married couple out to lunch. Or if you're a family that has children, invite a single. Or someone that's retired, take a student now. We have to intentionally make these transitions and we have to cross into these different groups. It's not going to happen by us just breathing and living. Uh, so, so here you have this uh, picture of a church, and, and what that is to do, it's to reflect God. Because God is different, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's diversity and unity there. So you know, when, when we dedicate children here, I love meeting with the families and, and seeing the children, and you can usually see some resemblances early on of the child of the parent. Now, as they get older, you see some of the characteristics in their personality, and oftentimes to our shame, uh, but, but you see those personality types coming out. But what's interesting is the children always seem to resemble the parent. It's just intuitive. We expect it to be. If there are children, they tend to look and act like us. What's well, the same thing with God? I mean, we are the children of God, and as we gather together, we ought to look like the family of God. And this is one way to do it, an attractive, a distinctive group of people. Okay, that's what he says in 21 to 23. But look at the nature of the purpose of the church in 25 to 27. And I want to give you three purposes, or three ways, I should say, to glorify God. Three ways. The first way is that I think we can praise God that he has given us strength to establish us in the faith. Look with me at, 20, at um, verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's able to strengthen you. So God is able. That, by the way, is the same word. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's power. It's the same word used in chapter 116, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew and for the Gentile. So there's power there. But in chapter 116, he's saying that God has the power to save the sinner. That's incredible. God has power to save us. But here he's saying that God has the power to strengthen us. That word for strengthen means to establish, to prop up, to hold up. God has the power to hold us up in faith. So in other words, God has the power uh, to keep us theologically on track when the winds of false teaching comes in. That God has the power, he is able to keep us from despairing when we run into sickness and even threat of death. That Jesus, that he has the power, he has the ability to keep us strong in the midst of temptation, maybe lust or envy or anger. In other words, what the promise is and the reason we glorify God is because he is able to strengthen us. You know, if you think about in Ephesians 3.20, Paul says that he is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. Do you think of God this way? When you think of God and you begin your day, you think, he is able to strengthen me. He is able to, to make me 
remain faithful. He is able to help me fight sin. That's what Paul's giving thanks to God for. He's not able just to save us. He's able to keep us saved. To keep us saved. That's incredible. How does he do it? Well, look what he says. It's according to my gospel. According to my gospel. The preaching of Jesus Christ. I don't think Paul's being possessive here. Like it's my gospel and it's not your gospel. I think he's probably differentiating it from other gospels that we're going about. And he's saying, no, the gospel that I was appointed to share is what I share with you that he's able to strengthen us according to his gospel, that is the preaching of Christ. So, let's say you're here and you're single and you're lonely. You don't want to be single. Maybe you're older. That, that the gospel can strengthen you by reminding you of the beautiful relationship you have with God as a father. If you're older and you're sick, maybe you fear death, the gospel is able to strengthen you by reminding you that in Christ he has put death to death. If you're burdened by sin, you don't feel the relief of forgiveness. He's able, uh, through the gospel, to wash you clean, to remind you that you are forgiven. You have been justified. If you're fighting despair, uh, you're lacking faith, you are languishing faith, the gospel is able to sustain you until times of refreshment come. So in other words, what Paul is praising God for is that he's able to strengthen us. We will finish well in the end, and it will be because he is able to do it. But it's through the preaching of the word. It's us gathering together, hearing God's word explained to us. That's the way he strengthens us. He says, according to my gospel, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the proclaiming, when you hear week after week, Christ proclaimed to you, that is the means of grace by which he sustains you. He strengthens you. The preacher is just a herald. He's just declaring that Christ has come in the flesh. He's lived a perfect life. He's died and he's been raised and he's seated at the right hand of God for us. The preacher is just a town crier telling a bunch of broken, needy people, forgiveness is yours. You have access to God. You've been reconciled. Paul says it this way. You know, the importance of preaching to Paul is in Colossians 1.28. He says, him or Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So in other words, the proclaiming of Christ is often a warning, it's often instruction, but what it does is it's going to present you mature, established in Christ. That's the nature of preaching. But not just preaching, you all have to remind each other of the gospel. I mean, you hear it from here, but we're to proclaim it to each other. When was the last time in this past, let's say, 30 days, where you heard a sister or brother who was struggling in life, and you were able to go to the gospel and give it to them and remind them of a truth that maybe they had forgotten that would strengthen and encourage them. That's why I love singing. You know, we go through these songs with not a fine-tooth comb, but we're pretty, we're pretty fastidious about making sure that the songs that we sing, have they're laced with the gospel so that when we're singing about them, we're really singing to each other. So I love hearing, sometimes as I've told you, I'll stop, I'll stop singing and let's just listen to you sing. Just listen to the voices of the people of God sing about the glory of God. I find it very encouraging. 
So this is the first reason that we give praise to God, because he will strengthen us. Tomorrow morning when you get up, he will strengthen you. He will encourage you. He will establish you in the faith. faith. But there's a second reason. And look with me that he has, we glorify God because he has revealed the gospel to us. Look with me back at, at um, 25 and 26. This is a huge word. You know, this, this doxology doesn't have a verb. He just piles phrases upon one another. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. Now jump with me to, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings that has made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. I mean, this is like a big piece of meat. We're just going to have to cut it in three small pieces to try to understand it. We are praising God, not just that he strengthens us, but secondly, we praise God that he has revealed the truth to us. Uh, look at the text with me. The revelation of the mystery. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed, this secret. It was a mystery. Now, remember, when I say mystery, I don't mean it's a puzzle that we could solve. And I don't mean that this mystery is some sort of thing that you can discover or invent or create. It had to be revealed. It was hidden, but it was... In other words, the fact that it was a secret doesn't mean it wasn't known to God before. It just was hidden. God had to reveal it. No man or woman could have discovered the gospel, this mystery. God had to bring it to us. Now, the question is, of course, what's the mystery? He doesn't specify it in the text. Well, of course, it's spoken about throughout the New Testament. The mystery is simply this. The mystery is Jesus Christ, the God-man, God the Son taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, coming and living perfectly, and then suffering a death for our sins, crushing sin, crushing death, being raised and seated at the right hand of God. That is the mystery. It continues, though. We are now in union with Christ by faith. We are in him, and he is in us. And in our union with Christ, we now have union with God as our Father and as adopted children. And the, union, and the mystery continues. This union that we have with Christ and the Father, we now share with one another. That, that we are now his new people. God has, this is what he says about being born again. We've been made new. So the Christian has been born again, has been made into a new human. That heart of stone has been taken out. And now we're one with the Son, making God our Father. This is the mystery that, that God has revealed to us. You and I, we would have never figured this out. But God has delivered it to us. Now notice what he says next. Because he says, he says, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to the nations. That's kind of awkward. If, if it's, if it's, in the prophetic writings, and wasn't it made known? Well, kind of yes and no. You know, in the Old Testament, the seeds of the gospel were there. Uh, the, the truth was there. It just wasn't fully understood. It wasn't fully known. You know that in 1 Peter, when he writes and he says that the prophets searched and inquired about these things. They didn't fully know. Uh, 
It is the New Testament that gives light and wisdom to understand the Old Testament. In other words, the true meaning of the Old Testament can only be seen in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. So Isaiah 53, for example, about the lamb that was slain, you know, that is best understood in Christ. You can understand parts of it, but Christ, it's like when I put my glasses on in the morning. Everything in the room is hazy and fuzzy. You put your glasses on, it gets really clear. And that's what Jesus Christ does. It's like a mystery novel, really. You know, if you ever watch Sherlock Holmes and, and, and you see all the, 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 you know, there's all these kind of clues throughout the show, but it's at the last five or ten minutes. And then all of a sudden an event happens or a person is discovered, and all those clues, they all make sense now. Oh, I get it now. And you have that aha moment. Wow, that's right, okay, it all makes sense. That's what Jesus has done. So the prophetic writings now have been made known in Christ to the nations. Uh, but there's one more piece of this, this piece of meat for us. Notice what it says. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So here's what happens. Paul's saying we can praise God because God has revealed to us this mystery. And this mystery has now been made known to the nations. It's been made clear because of Christ. And the mystery is going out now to draw the nations in to walk in obedience to faith. It's according to the command of God. So God is sovereignly determined, this is when I'm going to bring forth my son, and this is when I'm going to begin to expand it to the nations. Right? Because in Galatians, he says, in the fullness of time, God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and to give them full rights as sons and daughters of God. God said, now is the time. And God not only determined the time, but he determined the means by which the nations would come, which is through the preaching of the gospel. God's determined all of that. So we thank God. God, why have you revealed these things to us? Why do I know these things as I do? You know, the Spirit of God touches the Spirit in your soul, and you just know, why did he do it for us? Can you not glorify him? that there's thousands of people that have heard the same thing you have and they don't see what you see. I think about Paul in Corinthians when he says, what were you when you were called? You weren't noble, you weren't wise. No, he drew us to himself for his own glory so that we would recognize it wasn't me that discovered him, it was he who found me. And so I glorify him for that. I take no pride in it, for sure. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have known. He moved towards me with grace. He moved towards you. This is, this is why we glorify him. That the, the revealing of the gospel leads me to humility, uh, but it also leads me to obedience. You, you notice what he says, by the, eternal, by the command of the eternal God, uh, to bring about obedience in faith to the nations. We do obey our obedience is, is driven because God has loved us, not to secure God's love for us. You know, if you think back in the Ten Commandments, you know, when you get all these commands, you say, yeah, it's a religion of law. Not so. Uh, the preface before the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God, who drew you out of the land of, of Egypt, out of slavery. God moves with grace first. Our obedience is always fueled by affections. We want to obey God because we love him. 
It's my obedience to Carol, your obedience to your spouse, or your obedience to a good friendship. It's the same thing. We don't secure God's love. No, no, no. We express it by the way that we live. So there is an obedience there. And that is a way of glorifying God by walking out in obedience joyfully. But also, we glorify God in terms of he's revealed this gospel to us by having a concern for the nations. We want to have a concern for the nations. It doesn't mean you go to the nations, every one of you, but we do have a concern for the nations. We want the nations to be drawn. That's why we have Philip here. Pastor Philip will speak at the end of the service, at each of the services, and then he'll give a presentation of his ministry um, at lunch. I think we have food prepared for 100 plus, and those are signed up, but we'd encourage you to come anyways. Those of you who didn't sign up, maybe eat a little bit less, uh, but, but we would love to have you come because what he's going to do is he's going to talk to us about the ministry of God uh, in Jordan. That is a part of the world. That's a nation for which God is concerned and we are concerned. This is why we are in fellowship with him and we are in support of him and his ministry because we want to see the nations come to obey by faith. So, so the first two reasons we glorify God, we glorify God, he's going to strengthen us and he's revealed the gospel to us. But then third, we're going to glorify him for his wisdom. Look at me in verse 27. He says, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, to God be glory because of his wisdom. How has, shown, how has God shown his wisdom? Well, I think probably the simplest answer would be, in saving sinners, he's shown his wisdom. Uh, God's wisdom is seen in Christ coming, right? He's like us, but without sin. Uh, in Christ coming to bear our sin, that we wouldn't have to bear sin. That, that Christ has come to deliver us, humble himself to death. This displays the wisdom of God. How so? Well, it shows God is both just, God does punish sin, and yet God is gracious in justifying us who have faith. So we see the wisdom of God on the cross. We see the wisdom of God that he hasn't saved us based on human intellect, but because of the foolishness of the gospel. We see his wisdom as drawing us together and, and making us one body with Christ as our head. And this wisdom of God, you see, is through Christ. I want you to consider this for just a moment. Why is it that the bulk of those who have turned to God by faith have come after Jesus came. God could have drawn, the Spirit was active before the incarnation of Christ. It, you know, the bulk of humanity could have come to believe in God through this promised Messiah before Christ came. But it's been after Christ came. Why? I think it's to, so that all of us, that the Father wants the Son glorified. We have come to God by looking back at who he is and what he has done for us. And we glorify God by the Son. And we glorify God through the Son because the Son is the one that drew us to the Father. So we give him glory for his great wisdom and at the perfect time brings a Son to save us. And now we come to God in his name. So when you consider the wisdom of God, would you just marvel with me? I mean, salvation's not us. It's not about us centrally. Fundamentally, it's about God. I mean, we can just marvel over all that he has done to draw us to himself. I mean, it, it does take you stopping yourself 
in the busyness of your life, particularly coming up to this season, and thinking God's wisdom is best poured out in Christ. In fact, he says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Marvel over Christ with me this season. Just consider him as wisdom. But as you consider the wisdom of God, I pray that you would rejoice with me as well, that you would rejoice, have confidence that God is bringing about all things to his perfect end. You look at the news, you look at the political chaos, you look at the cultural chaos, please don't fear that. The one who has navigated thousands of years bringing about a perfect end, he is guiding all things. God is not losing control of this world. We may be losing control of ourselves, but God will guide his church to the desired and the destined end that he has ordained. It will happen, just as sure as he destined Christ to be brought in the day that he was brought forth. And then last, I would say that with the wisdom of God, when you consider his wisdom, give your lives to him. That is the purpose of the church, to live for God's glory. Live for his glory. I mean, work in your marriage, in your job, in your friendships, in your community. How can I glorify you, God? I mean, that is the purpose of, you know, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. The whole book of Romans is simply helping us live for his glory, not to live for ourselves. And remember, they're not mutually exclusive. Living for God's glory is a pathway to our own happiness. We can't bring God glory without being happy. So you look at the end of Romans, I'm kind of sad. I, I remember uh, younger in ministry not wanting to do Romans because I didn't think um, I was mature enough. By the way, I still don't think I was, so I just went ahead. We're running out of New Testament books. No, the, uh, I, I, I was intimidated by the book, and um, I still am intimidated by the book. I think it's probably the greatest letter ever written, but we have made it through. And by God's grace, we're now at the end. And the last few words are, you know what he's saying to the church? Look at your nature. You're to reflect God's glory. And then look at your purpose. You're to give God glory. So let's take a moment now and just consider these things. And I, I pray that you might ask God for grace to do this. Perhaps you might even express your sadness over failing to live for his glory. But let's use this as a time now to... Enjoy the peace that we can have with God in Christ. I'll pray for us in a moment.